Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Canton Church, a campus of Mount Perrin North. We exist to help people live a Christ-centered life, and we hope that you are encouraged by today's message. All right, how many of you would be so bold as to raise your hand and say, I watched that show? All right, see, that's good. All right, I watched that show as well. It was one of the shows that my parents would let me watch um, that was kind of, it was, you know, superheroes. We didn't get to watch all those kind of superhero shows or movies that existed, you know, depending on the stage of life I was at. But we always got to watch Batman, and I loved it. And it taught me words like oof and boof and cow and pow, and I loved that, and that was really cool. But here's something else, too. We watched another show called The Andy Griffith Show. Anybody ever watch Andy Griffith Show? Okay, my mom loved The Andy Griffith Show, and she had every single episode on videotape. For those that don't know, just Google videotape. That'll show you what that piece of technology was. But we had every episode on video, and so, like, we would come down for breakfast in the morning, and she'd have an episode of Andy Griffith playing, and, you know, that evening we'd watch Andy Griffith around the house. Like, I have seen every single episode, and when life presents itself in a great way for me to quote the Andy Griffith show, I will do it. But here's, what's hap- here's what happened in my brain, and I know this will, just, this will enlighten you into how crazy I am, okay? I equated Andy Griffith to Batman and Barney Fife to Robin. So what I was doing is, it made sense in my head. I know, you're like, that don't even make sense. It made sense in my head because what happened was Batman was kind of like, he had it all together. He, you know, he had, he never really made a lot of mistakes. Robin made some mistakes. He was a little bit more immature. He did, he said some things you wished he wouldn't have said, did some things you wished he wouldn't have done. Same thing here. Andy Griffith was like, he had it all together. He never made mistakes. Barney Fife was just trouble waiting to happen. He would say things you didn't want him to say and do things you didn't want him to do. And so Andy would always help to protect Barney. Well, Batman would always kind of protect Robin. Now, don't think about all the new movies. Just think about that version of Batman. And in my head, it made sense that that's, they were the same kind of people, that Batman and Andy Griffith were the same, and Barney Fife and Robin were the same, because those protectors, Batman would protect Robin, and Andy would protect Barney. Now, I'm wearing a Batman shirt today because we are continuing in a series we started last week which we had so much fun. We had, we had super fun Sunday last Sunday. And I realized because we've got three services and, uh, you know, we have a room like this size and the layout of this, you don't always know what's happening across our, this campus on any given Sunday. But we had an incredible day, just a, 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 gr- a great attendance, large attendance, one of our largest ever. We had people saved. It was just so much fun. We had a blast, kids' costume contests and people taking pictures. It was such a fun day as we kicked off a series called Heroes, a super fun series. And we looked at this idea that, you know, we're not superheroes. And I don't know about you, like, I'm not somebody that feels like I'm a superhero. I don't feel like I've got any super ability to help people. And I'm sure you don't either. But, you know, in the routine and rhythm of life, we don't feel like superheroes. But what we talked about last week is that you can be a hero to someone else, whether you think you're super or not. You can be a hero to someone else, whether you think you're super or not. You know, like in the rhythm and routine of life, sometimes it just sucks you in and then sucks the life right out of you. But God and his power, he doesn't make us superheroes, but he allows us to invest in relationships and to be there for other people and to treat them in the ways that we ourselves even want to be treated. And so last week we talked about, out of the book of Micah, if you've got a Bible, you can flip with me to Micah. We're going to jump back in where we were at last week. We talked about the prophet Micah. He was a contemporary of Isaiah and Amos and Hosea there in the Old Testament. He was this prophet of God that God spoke to and spoke through to get a message to his people 
God was speaking to the children of Israel, and what he wanted them to know through the prophet Micah is that he was justified in his judgment toward them because they had been disobedient to him. And so Micah is telling that story. He's talking to God's people about that, that God's judgment is coming, and it's justified because they've been disobedient. And as Micah's talking to them in Micah chapter 6, he lays out for them, he actually asks them some questions like, what do you want me to do? What am I supposed to do as I present myself and us to God And this is what it says in Micah 6, beginning in verse 6, reading down to verse 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And so what we talked about last week is that there in verse 8, what we find is the summation of what Micah is challenging the children of Israel with as they're being disobedient. He's saying, listen, what does God require of you? What is it that God's wanting from you? He's really wanting these three things, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. To do justice, to love mercy, And to walk humbly. So, as we were crafting these three weeks, we decided to craft them and couch them in this superhero idea. And last week we talked about Superman. We talked about him kind of encompassing this idea of justice. He was truth, justice, and the American way. And we talked about justice was a word in the original language, the the Hebrew language here that Micah was originally written in, that this word had two meanings one for God and one for man. The word, uh, the word here used for justice related to being defined for God actually meant judgment. And the word for man was justice, and it was to do right. But the problem is, for Christians, and I realize not everybody in the room is a Christian, but for Christians, so often we take our definition of justice, which is to do right, and we set that aside, and we take on God's definition of justice, which was judgment, and we become like judge and jury for everybody in our lives. We think because we have now been enlightened, we have, been, we have received something from God, that now we're supposed to just walk around judging people. And, and so a lot of Christians do that, and we get a bad rap. If you're a follower of Christ in the room, you, get, you and I get a bad rap because of all these people that walk around judging, because surely we don't do that. It's other people that do that. But we get lumped in with them sometimes. And so we take that on, and we say, well, I'm judge and jury, when really we were called to do right to do justice is to do right everywhere we can, every place that we can, to every person that we can. We do what is right, not so that we earn more good graces with God, but so that we reflect God to the world that's in search of him. And so we do justice. And so that's what we talked about last week, that even though we don't feel like superheroes, we can do what is right. And so today we want to talk about mercy. And mercy, we, we want to look at Batman. I don't have a video clip for you like I had last week. We'll have another one next week. But when I think of mercy, I think about Batman uh, because, again, the, the show that I watch, maybe not all the new uh, superhero or Batman movies, but the show that I watch, Batman never killed anybody. Like, my parents let me watch it because Batman was a pretty good guy. They would show that bat signal, which would be awesome, by the way. Like, if they had one of those for me, I would love that. Or a little phone that they would ring when they absolutely needed me and not just to call me all the time. Like, I would pick that up. I, I love that call. And so he would go to wherever the crime was happening wherever it was at, and he would do whatever needed to be done to capture that person, and he would just hold them until the police got there, or he would tie them up, or Robin would sit on them, or whatever it was until the police got there. But he showed mercy. He didn't have to do something really, really harsh or take their life because he would show mercy. Well, if we're going to talk about mercy, I think it's great for us to be able to define 
mercy, because there's a lot of things floating in our head probably when you hear this word. If you're talking about the word mercy, what we're talking about is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. And so if there's somebody here on stage and they've done something to me and I can punish them or harm them, but instead I show compassion towards them, instead of judging them, instead of uh, punishing them or showing harm towards them, what I do is I give compassion towards them, right? When they don't deserve it, I give compassion or even forgiveness to that person instead of punishing them or harming. Even though it's probably within my right to do it, it's definitely in my ability to do it, I I show compassion or forgiveness towards them. So maybe you're not thinking it. Maybe you have a very clear understanding of mercy. But I know one of the things that often gets uh, misunderstood about mercy is we also talk about grace. A lot of times grace and mercy are kind of thrown in the same place in a sentence or the same place when we're talking about these values. What is grace? What is mercy? How do they differ? How are they similar? Because they are really similar, but they also are different. When we're talking about the difference in grace and mercy, what we're talking about here related to God is mercy is God not punishing us as our sins would deserve, not punishing us even though we deserve it. (coughs) Grace is God blessing us despite the fact that we don't deserve it. So mercy is God not doing to us what we deserve. The punishment that we deserve, God withholds that. That's mercy. Grace is God blessing us with something that we don't deserve. So let me just give you a great example right here using my own kids. If my kids do something that deserves punishment and I choose not to punish them, that's mercy. But if they also have not done anything to earn it and I just give them a gift, that's me being gracious towards them. That's me giving grace towards them. I gave them a gift they didn't deserve. They didn't earn it. They didn't do anything necessarily special to get it. That's grace. But if I withhold punishment from them for something that they wrongfully did, that's mercy. And so when we're talking about grace and mercy, they're, they're very similar, but they are not the same thing. Mercy is really deliverance from judgment, and grace is extending kindness toward those that are unworthy. You know, when we were talking about this series several months ago, we started working towards this idea of mercy. I really, I knew pretty, pretty quickly where I felt like we were going to land, what story we were going to land in, because it's a story that really resonates in my heart. It's a story that many of you may be familiar with. It's found in the Gospels. The account today that we're going to read is John chapter 8. When I say the Gospels, I'm talking about those first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where we see the life and ministry of Jesus Christ here on earth. And John chapter 8 is the place we're going to land today to look at the story of this woman who is caught in the act of adultery. Now, in present day, that's still something that shouldn't be done, but it's even more readily accepted now than for sure it was back then, because back then it was a punishable offense, uh, even if you weren't a person of faith, just within that culture But the law of Moses, those that the Jews would have lived by, that punishment for uh, adultery would have been to be stoned to death. Now, interestingly, it's the religious leaders that bring this woman to Jesus. And they're not really as concerned with the woman as they are trying to trap Jesus. Because if he condemns her to death according to the law of Moses, then maybe he would lose favor with the people. If he doesn't condemn her to death according to the law then he is disobedient to the law, and so he couldn't stand as a, you know, a righteous teacher of the law. And so they're trying to trap Jesus. It's not even really about the woman. And the reason that we know that is because it wouldn't just have been the woman that was punishable uh, by death for this act. You know, the act of adultery would require that two people be involved, but they're only bringing this woman. A lot of times theologians have kind of guessed or they've done study, and they try to figure out maybe it was one of the religious leaders that was even involved with this woman. They knew her reputation 
And they brought her into this situation so that they could catch her and then bring her to Jesus. But they didn't bring the man. And so this is really not just about this woman. But they bring this woman to Jesus. And Jesus is standing there. And we see her kind of thrown at his feet as she's standing there beside him. And then the religious leaders say to Jesus, what are we supposed to do with her? You know, the law of Moses said that we're supposed to stone her to death for what she's been caught in doing. And Jesus does something weird. Now, Jesus did a lot of weird things. One time they brought this blind guy to him, and, you know, he was going to heal the blind guy. But instead of just being like, be healed, you can see, he spit in the dirt and made mud and put a paste over the guy's eye, and then the guy could see. That's awesome, but it's also a little bit weird, right? If that was me, I'd be like, thank you, Jesus, I can see. Now I'm going to go take a shower. Like, that's a little bit weird. I get that. Not everything that Jesus did was like, oh, that's awesome. I, I would think, wish he would do that to me because that was a little bit weird. But here, here's something he did that was weird then, too. They bring this woman to Jesus, and they say she's been caught in the act of adultery, and according to the law of Moses, she should be stoned to death. What do you say? You know what Jesus does? He doesn't even respond. He completely ignores them. He just bends down and starts writing in the dirt. Now, I don't know what he was writing. That's not recorded. One of the guys after the second service said, I think he was writing down the sins of those people. I don't know what he was writing down. I, if he's anything like me, I think maybe he was writing like, God, please help me not scream at these guys. God, why do they not get it? Why are they not understanding? Why, they, they, why, are, they, why are they trying to do this? Why are they trying to trap me? I don't know what he was writing. He bends down and he writes in the dirt. And then he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, even if you're not a faith person, you've never read the Bible, you may have heard that phrase. It's kind of transcended faith. It's transcended the Bible. It's in a culture. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. You can't judge if you've got anything going on in your own life or if you've ever made a mistake. So let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then this interesting thing happens. Then he reaches back down and starts drawing in the dirt again. And this is what John records in verse 9 through 11 of John chapter 8. In response to what he said, this is what the people did. At this, those who heard what Jesus had just said began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. Now stop for just a second. Don't keep reading on the screen. Lock in on me for a second. I love this phrase, the older ones first. I mean, it's as if John wanted us to know that there was an order to the way that people turned and walked away, that these men turned, these accusers turned and walked away. It wasn't just random. It wasn't like they, you know, those that sinned the most or those that sinned. It wasn't anything like that. It was the older ones. It was the ones who were maybe a little bit more mature, a little less arrogant, a little less prideful potentially, who, who said, you know what, I got enough life behind me to know that nobody's perfect. I've made some mistakes. And I, I guess I probably need to be careful before I try to throw this rock at her because I've, I've messed up myself. Let's keep reading. So the older ones first. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. There's so many things I love about this story and that, that really resonate with me. One of those being that like, if you're, if you're in the room and you're thinking, man, Jesus, like, he just made it okay for her to do what she did. That's not what happened. While the accusers wanted to publicly humiliate her, 
Jesus had a conversation with her one-on-one after everybody else had left. He didn't excuse her sin. He didn't make it okay what she had done, but he challenged her on a personal level because of this personal moment that they were sharing together. Like, that's a powerful thing that's happening because in our culture, in our time, we talked about it last week, man, Christians for sure, but other people in general, we like to judge, we like to publicly shame people. Like, we love to make it where people, like everybody's against them, the crowd, the mob mentality. We go on Facebook and we rant and we rave about people and about stuff, the things they did, how dare they do this, they call themselves this, they call themselves a Christian, they call themselves, how dare they do this? And after Jesus had confronted all of those people and they left, he says to her, go and leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. While they were confronting her about a moment of sin, a moment of indiscretion, a a, a moment of mistake, Jesus was more concerned with her lifestyle. Jesus was more concerned with her heart. Jesus was more concerned with her pattern of behavior. I'm so thankful for that because I believe that shares like a nature, a component of the nature of God with me because I've got moments of mistakes. I've got moments where I've done stuff I'm not proud of. And I pray that my heart stays soft enough to always say, God, please forgive me. I'm, I should not have done that. I'm so sorry. So that I can stay out of patterns of behavior, lifestyle decisions, behavioral things that are leading me away from God instead of toward God. None of us are perfect, but these people wanted to jump on a moment. And God, through Jesus Christ, said, go and leave your lifestyle of sin. Go and sin no more. It's important to me the totality of who you are and not just your worst moments. I love that. The other thing that I love is the way that Jesus confronted her accusers. You know, they're standing there, and I'm making it up. I don't know any of their names, but they pick up a rock, and they're ready to stone her. You know, the law of Moses, Jesus, it says that we can stone her. It says we can kill her. What do you say? And Jesus writes in the dirt, and he's like, what is he doing? What do you think he's writing? What is he doing? And then Jesus looks up, and he says, let you who is without sin throw the first stone. And so one of those guys is like, all right. Well, he knows what I did yesterday. I can't really, okay. And then this guy's like, I don't know where he's going. Well, you know, I said some stuff I shouldn't have said the last meeting we had. Like, I love that Jesus lets them judge themselves. The most powerful judge we have is ourselves from the standpoint of other people, right? We know our heart. We know our motives. We know what we've done. We know the things in secret. We, we know us better than other people know us. And I love that Jesus lets them judge themselves. But then when they walk away, Jesus is left with her. And he says, where are they? Is there nobody left to condemn you? He says, no, there's, there's nobody. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Neither am I going to do what they were attempting to do to you. Go and sin no more. And it, it leaves me with this question about those accusers. What was their point? Like, what was their motivation? Other than to trap Jesus, 
Because remember, she was just kind of stuck in the middle. But other than to trap Jesus, what was their point to do what they were doing to her? Was it to make her feel guilty? Was it to shame her publicly? So like when we take on the role of judge, what's our point? Why do we accuse people? Why do we judge people? So we feel better about ourselves? So they feel worse about themselves? Because the story of God going all the way back to Adam and Eve and the sin of the garden is that God is attempting to reconcile man back to himself. If our point is not to restore people back to God, we've missed the point. If we're just trying to make them feel worse about themselves or us to feel better about ourselves, we are missing the point. We aren't called to play the role of the accuser. We're not called to play the role of the judge so that other people feel guilty instead of the public things that we try to do. What if we had a one-on-one conversation where we were challenging people to grow in relationship with God? Go and sin no more. Go and leave your life of sin. I'm not here to condemn you. I want to challenge you to be better. Like, what if that's the role we took? If God is in the restoration business, if he's in the reconciling business, why should we not be in that business? Why should we not be about restoring and reconciling people? What's the point of what we're doing when we accuse and when we judge? I've said for about 10 or 12 years this this quote that I'm about to give you, and, and I think it came from John Maxwell. I don't know that for sure because I can't remember the book I was reading. But I've looked it up on the internet, and it's not there, which means it's probably not true, okay? But if you love it, just think that I said it. If you hate it, it was John Maxwell, okay? But I can't prove that. Here's the quote. I've been saying it for a decade or more. If I overreact to a situation that involves someone else, I'm telling that other person that I value the situation more than I value our relationship. If I overreact in a situation that involves somebody else, I'm telling that person that I value the situation more than I value the relationship. Let me give you a great example. I've already used my kids. I'll use them again. If later this afternoon, which is very likely to happen, if later this afternoon one of my children walks into the living room and spills a drink and I go ballistic... If I scream and yell, I'm not talking about punishing them. I'm not talking about correcting them. We should have had a lid on it. We should have done the thing with the thing. Like, I'm not talking about that. If I lose my mind screaming and yelling at them, how dare you? What I'm saying to my child is that I value the condition of my floors more than I value the condition of our relationship. If I overreact in a situation that involves someone else, I'm saying to the other person, I value the circumstances. I value the way that I am perceived. I value the way this makes me feel more than I value my relationship with you. That's what I'm saying. There is a response that's needed, but it's an appropriate response. I'm a political junkie. Even this political season's got me down, okay? So I'm on board with everybody else. But I love politics. I wanted to be president of the United States. I love it. I absolutely love politics. I I love political dramas and shows and movies. 
And I love when in those shows or those movies, they bring the president to the situation room when someone has done something against the United States, and they are explaining to him his options for an appropriate response. You know, when someone's done something, we have to respond in an appropriate way. If we over-respond, if we overreact, we start a conflict. But if we respond in an appropriate way, we are just letting them know we won't stand for this. There is a need for an appropriate response. And so I'm not saying you just let people, I'm saying you get in relationship with people, you get down with them, and you have a one-on-one conversation that says, listen, I want to challenge you, I want to help make you better, I want to call you to repentance. But we don't pick up rocks and throw them at people, because we've missed the point if it's not about reconciliation and restoration back to God. I want to tell you one more story before we close that I think kind of wraps all of these pieces together, all the things we've been talking about. It's found in Matthew chapter 18. And it's the story of a master, or even a king in some translations, that has all these servants, and they all owe him money. And they owe him a bunch of money. And he has just gotten tired of loaning people a bunch of money that they're not paying him back. And so he calls all the debts into collection. He says, if you owe me anything, you've got to come and pay me. If you can't pay me, you're going to jail till you can pay me off. So he's bringing everybody in. And he brings this one servant in, and some translations use the, that, that currency of that day. Newer translations like New Living or The Message might say he owed him a million dollars. He walks in, and the master says, hey, you owe me a million dollars. I want you to pay. And he's like, master, I do not have a million dollars. I am so sorry. Like, I can write you a check, but it's going to bounce. Like, I don't, I'm so sorry. I don't have a million dollars. I am so, like, please, is there anything we can do? I'll work it off. I'll, I'll create a business. I'll sell the business. I'll sell whatever I got to do. Please, please, please forgive this debt. Please help me. And the king's like, you know what? I've had a good day. I've collected a bunch of money. Just forget about it. It's fine. It's not even a big deal. Just forget about it. Don't even worry about it. I forgive you the debt. You don't even have to pay me back. He's like, thank you so much. I love you. You're the best king ever. I'm going to get a shirt that says, I love my king. Like, I love you. Thank you so, so much. And he walks out. And as he's walking out of the palace, he remembers, oh, debt. People owe. Joe owes me a thousand bucks. And so he's like, hey, Joe, listen, you owe me a thousand dollars. I want you to give me the thousand dollars that you owe me. And Joe's like, man, I don't have a thousand dollars. I am so sorry. Like, I will, I'll pay you back. Like, I'll, whatever I got to do, like, I'll, I'll pay, I'll help. Like, I'll pay, I'll, I don't have a thousand. And the guy's like, no, 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 I'll, you owe me a thousand dollars. It's rightfully mine. I want my thousand dollars. He was like, I, I don't have a thousand dollars. I'm so, so, he's like, okay, guards, here's the IOU. He owes me a thousand dollars. He will not pay me. Take him to jail. And the guards take Joe to jail. Well, there's some servants that are watching this happen And they happened to be in the palace when this servant was excused and forgiven of his million-dollar debt to the king. And they get mad about it, and they go tell the king. And the king's like, all right, bring him back in. He brings him back in, and this is what we read in Matthew chapter 18, verse 32 through 34. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debts of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all 
he owed. When I read that, I'm confronted with this idea that's going to hurt some of our feelings this morning, and it's this. There is no such thing as a forgiven person who doesn't forgive. There's no such thing as a forgiven person who doesn't forgive. When I read this story, I'm confronted with the truth that this man had been shown mercy and yet did not show mercy. And he was held accountable for it. He had been forgiven his debts, but he did not forgive his debts. And he was held accountable for it. I don't know what you believe about what's to come, like what the end times look like and what's in the future. I don't know what you believe about that. We talk about it some. We don't talk about it all the time. It seems to be one of the contentious places in faith. And we believe some things, which I'm going to talk about in a second, but we choose not to dive into those things which may or may not be clear for everybody and just create fights where it's not needed because we don't believe that it affects necessarily the way that we should live today. But I'll tell you some things that I do believe 100%, and I believe they're founded in Scripture. I believe there's coming a day where God is going to judge mankind. I believe he's not just going to judge mankind in general. I think he's going to judge mankind, me, individually, and you individually. And I believe he's going to judge us for the things that we've done. And if you have prayed and asked God to come and be the Lord and Savior of your life, and you say, hey, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, I believe in that moment immediately he forgave you of your sins. But I do believe that you and I will be held accountable for the way that we respond to that forgiveness that we've received. The way that we respond to the mercy that's been given and how we treat other people with that, how we live. I don't think we just get a free reign to go and do whatever we want to after we've prayed some prayer and we're not held accountable for anything that we've done. I think if we have been forgiven, we must forgive. If we have been shown mercy, we must show mercy. And I'm not making this up on my own. It's the very next verse of Matthew 18 when it says this. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Remember the story. The master forgave the servant his debts. And yet, because of the way he treated someone else, he still went to jail. There is no such thing as a forgiven person who doesn't forgive. I know it's hard. I'm not excusing what they did to you. I'm not telling you that what they owe you isn't rightfully yours. I'm not telling you that what they did was right. I'm saying they're wrong, probably. I'm saying they do owe you an apology. I'm saying it's bad what they did. And yet, you're only accountable for what you do in response to them. When, when you and I have been done wrong, we can punish them and do harm to them. Or we can forgive them and show them compassion. That's mercy. That's mercy. I want you to think about it this way. I wrote this down. This has been so challenging to me. I, I emailed this to myself earlier this week. Just while I was, that's what I do a lot of times. If I have a thought, I want to make sure I don't forget it. I email it to myself. I did that. This has challenged me all week long. This is the thought. What if you could only receive as much mercy as you give? 
What if you could only receive as much mercy as you give? How merciful would you become? What if you could only be forgiven as much as you forgive? How forgiving would you become? What if you could only receive as much love as you give? How loving would you become? When you have the right to punish them or do harm to them, and instead you choose compassion and forgiveness. When they are caught in the act and are guilty and by law should be punished, are you the one standing there with the rock just waiting to let it loose because they deserve it? Or do we have enough self-awareness? Do we have enough wisdom in God, discernment of the voice of God that we could hear him say, let him who, is cast, who has not sinned cast the first stone? And we go, you know what? Do we drop the rock? Do we turn and walk away? Let me give you a better idea. You remember what we read? It said, they began to go away, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. What if we dropped the rock and got down beside her in the dirt? Like, what if, what if we just knelt beside them? Because here's the thing. She knew she was guilty. She knew she was guilty. Not one time did she ever say, I am innocent of all charges. She knew she was guilty. And there are people in your life and people in my life who know they're guilty. Some of us in this room, we know we're guilty. And there are people that are standing at arm's length with a rock, ready to condemn us, judging us. What if we just dropped the rock? We got down in the dirt beside him. Who was left with her? Only Jesus. Well, what if the people in your life and the people in mine, what if they don't see Jesus when they look around? Who do they see? They should see me. They should see you. They're, they're kneeling there in their own guilt, in their own shame. In their own, they, they know they are guilty. They're just waiting on the rocks to start being thrown. They're just waiting to get hurt. They're waiting on the brute. Like they're just waiting on the first one to let loose. And they start hearing rocks fall. And they look up. Who are they going to see when they look up? If not us, then who? If not us, then who? If I've been forgiven, I must forgive. If I've been shown mercy, I must be merciful. If I've been shown love, I should show love. If not us, then who? Don't just drop the rock and walk away. Drop the rock and get in the dirt with her, with him. There are some ladies in your life that are carrying such guilt and shame, and they don't have anybody that will stand beside them. Go stand beside her. There are some men that you know who are ashamed of what they Go stand beside him. There are some friends and family members who have been rejected by everybody else, and they're standing in the center of the circle, and they're just waiting on people to throw rocks. Go stand beside them. 
if not us, then who? If we have been forgiven, we must forgive. If we have been shown mercy, we must show mercy. There is no such thing as a forgiven person who doesn't forgive. You might even say it this way. Forgiven people, forgive people. Saved people, serve people. Found people, find people. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is not just for you if you're a Christ follower in the room. It's for you to find people who don't have anybody else, like maybe you didn't have anybody else, and go kneel beside them, stand beside them, so they know they're not alone. You should bow your head and close your eyes this morning as we close. God, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love towards us, which we do not deserve. And God, right now, for anybody in this room who says, I need to ask the Lord to be my Lord and Savior. I need to admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. God, I pray that they would have the courage to do so. I believe immediately you respond and forgive them. God, I pray that today they would experience life in you. And God, for those of us that have found ourselves to be the accusers, I pray that our heart would break today to know that maybe we missed the point. If it wasn't about reconciling them back to you, if it wasn't about restoring them to you, maybe we missed the point. Maybe we're not called to play the accuser. Maybe we're not called to play the judge. Maybe we should drop our rock and kneel down beside them in the dirt. Maybe we should stand arm in arm with them just so they know they're not by themselves. God, would, we help, would you help us to represent you in the way that we interact with people? God, for those of us in this room who have been forgiven, let us forgive. For those of us who have been shown mercy, let us show mercy. I pray that you would help all of us reflect you in the way that we live, the way that we interact with other people. God, if not us, then who? God, let it be us. In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks again for listening today. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.